The following program is presented by the Far East Broadcasting Company because stories of people living out the gospel with their lives inspire all of us. FEBC, taking Christ to the world through radio and new media. Learn more at febc.org. You find out what God's doing and you join Him. And that's all we did. I mean, it was a supernatural move. And, you know, it was wonderful. But I don't want to go back there because I believe the greatest revival in the world is coming ahead. He's 90 years old and looking ahead to a great spiritual revival and awakening, much like he witnessed firsthand during the days of the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s. Today on First Person, you meet pastor and author Don Finto. Welcome. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Before we begin, please take a moment to browse the many interviews available at our website, firstpersoninterview.com. In addition to the web archive, you can also subscribe to our podcast edition at Apple, Spotify, and many other podcast portals. Just search for First Person Interview. There's also a free app available in your app store. On a trip to the Nashville area, I took time to call on our guest who has lived a full life as a missionary, a college professor, pastor, ministry founder, and author. His name is Don Finto. We'll learn much about his life, including his 25 years as the pastor of Nashville's Belmont Church at a time when the Jesus Movement was sweeping the nation and his church was in the thick of it. Don is also the founder of the Caleb Company, developing the next generation of leaders. I asked him to start at the beginning of his eventful life. Actually, it was on a farm in Texas. Was it? Uh, <laughs> eight miles out from a town that most people don't know anything about, La Mesa, Texas. <laughs> and... Uh, but people would may, might know Lubbock, Texas, so uh-huh. it's 60 miles south of that. But we weren't even in the little town, didn't have more than six, 7,000 people anyway, probably. But yeah. Have you ever been back there? Uh, I did for years, but there's nothing there now. Of The farm was sold. My grandparents, I mean, uh, the farm was sold, and, and even the house that I grew up in was burned. Hmm. And so... The, I did for several years. I would go back once in a while, okay. but, but that right. was it. Yeah. So, what was the next step in life for you after? I mean, you you went to school in Lubbock, right? <laughs> I went to high school in Lubbock. High school, high, high school in Lubbock. Uh, I was, you know, I told you the uh, my dad left when I was two, and uh, I had three older sisters, so a mother and three older sisters, five, seven, and nine years older than than I was, and my mother had had asthma, and so she couldn't stay on the farm. So we, we moved right outside of Abilene, Texas, a little town, little bitty town called Trent. But she died oh. of, we think it was leukemia now, but at the time I don't think it was diagnosed yet, but it was some kind of blood disease, mm-hmm. two years after my dad had left. So I was four when my mother died. So we moved back to the farm then, but my grandparents then uh, had had a farm there. So we moved there. And they had had <laughs> they had had ten children of their own, but actually nine of them grew to be adults. One died in infancy, and at the time my mother now had died, and so there were still seven living uncles. Wow! There was there was two two older girls, one of them died, and eight boys behind that, and four of my uncles were still living in the house when we four grandkids moved in. My youngest uncle was five years older than my oldest sister. That's one big family. That's one big family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, and so we grew up working in the fields all summer and mm. from milking cows from the time I was five years old yeah, and yeah. <laughs> all that kind of thing. Well, when did the Lord come into your life? What, tell me that part of your story. You know, honestly, Wayne, 
I can remember, and I think it was because of the trauma that I'd experienced, I really wanted to follow the Lord from youth. Hmm. I remember uh, in, my, in the tradition I was reared in, you generally weren't baptized until you were at least 12. But I remember thinking when I was 9 and 10, I really wanted to be, but I knew they wouldn't let me. So I finally asked at 10, and they wouldn't let me. My grandparents wouldn't let me. And finally, I asked again at 11, and they finally let me get baptized. <laughs> oh, so, okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. But it was, in, in retrospect now, it, it, was, it was very sectarian. I mean, it was not what I would walk in now is just a free believing, connected to all the real ardent believers all over the world, but it was, it was a segment of the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and, and I remember even worrying, I mean, wrestling with that in my youth, wondering if, mm-hmm. wait a minute, what, is, this, is this right? Well, that, so that's even, interesting. Even, I'm, talking, yeah. I'm talking when I was 10, 11, 12, 13. And, yeah. and, and, and see, this is a whole other thing, too. My sisters had been working at the Air Force Base in Lubbock. That's why I was able to move up there and live with them. But because of the trauma in my life, and Texas didn't have a law against it, I was able to. I started to school when I was five, and then Texas had eleven grade system. So when they moved to twelve, I skipped a grade. So I was, I was thirteen when I was a senior in high school. Mm. So that's what I moved to work to live with my sisters and worked in a grocery store in the afternoon at age thirteen. Finished high school when I was barely 16. Well, it's interesting that you say that you were wondering, is there more yes. at, at that early age? Because, Absolutely. I mean, the rest of your story is yeah. the story of there is more. That's right. So did you set out in, in life to be in, in ministry? What was, your, what was your goal, ambition you know, at that time? <laughs> interesting. When I graduated from Abilene Christian when, uh, uh, in Abilene, Texas, I actually had a job, had, a, had an offer to be a, a, a DJ in a radio station Did in you San, really? San Angelo, Texas. <laughs> Did you take the job? No. no. Oh, radio's lost. I didn't lost. because I also had an opportunity to work for youth in a church in Memphis, Tennessee, and that's where I met my wife. Okay. Much better. Much better, <laughs> <Yeah>. believe me. <laughs> and then I, my senior year in college, uh, this uh, this would would have been 1950. My senior in college. <laughs> You're dating yourself now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, and a man came through who was recruiting people to go to Germany, and in post war Germany as missionaries. And I remember lying awake at night during the Second World War. I was 11 when the war broke out, 15 when it was finished, the Second World War. And I remember lying awake at night thinking about the Japanese and the Germans and would they take over America. But I remember thinking, but I bet they're not, they can't all be devils. Some mm-hmm. of them would like to follow the Lord, I'll bet. So by, because this man then was recruiting people, I didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit was so moving on me that I couldn't deny it. I had to do it. I didn't want to. But I, and I didn't know anything about the work of the Holy Spirit then, but that's what was happening to me. So when I married my wife, I'd already agreed to go to Germany. So we went to Germany for eight years. Okay, again, I got to stop you because it's so <laughs> interesting to hear you say that, knowing what's ahead in life for you. Yes, that the Lord was preparing you even then, even though you didn't understand it. Isn't exactly. that isn't that our story? I was, uh, it was awesome. I mean, I I know now, I know it could had to be the Holy Spirit because I didn't want to do it, but I felt like I didn't have any choice. Yeah. How many years in Germany? Eight. Eight years in yeah. post. That couldn't have been easy. No, it wasn't. And we intentionally moved to Hamburg, away from where the Americans were, because we thought if we're in Germany, we're going to we want to be with the Germans. We want to, and so we we started a little congregation of people up there. And well, how were you treated by the German people after the oh, war? 
we were treated extremely well. I mean, there was there were some because there were the Americans were many a times many of the people really loved the Americans, and we were among the people that really loved us. And 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 we met. I mean, I can I remember the there was one woman that I know for sure was a part of the what's called Enchidness Christentum, which is which uh, what do we call that? Dietrich Bonhoeffer type stuff. Oh, uh-huh. You know that really were that weren't a part. They were beyond the state church because, see, the state church in Germany, over 90% of the yeah. people are members of the state church. Yeah. Confessing church is what you're Confessing talking about? Confessing church is yeah. what I'm talking about, yeah. 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 And see, North Germany is more Protestant and South Germany is more Catholic, but 90% were believers, but it didn't make much difference in their lives. There's so much to your life, Don. Uh, <laughs> after eight years in Germany, you came back to the States to teach at Lipscomb University. No, I came back to the States, and we lived in, in Memphis, Tennessee. Oh, okay. I'm For three apart. years because I didn't have the credentials to teach at Lipscomb yet. I, had, I didn't have a master's degree. So I got a master's degree in Memphis. And with that master's degree, after three years, then I moved to Nashville and started working in, at Lipscomb. And then they put me through a PhD program. And I became head of the language department. So right. I was there eight years as well. And then uh, after Lipscomb came Belmont yes. uh, Church in Nashville, which right. is uh, a big part of your life story, isn't it? Right, yeah. right. Tell me about the call to the church. Well, again, when I left Lipscomb, I, Belmont was a little congregation, but I was very involved with the Jesus movement. And actually, at the time... Uh, I was getting in trouble at school because I was too involved. I, I went searching for a couple of my students that had been expelled for drugs, uh-huh. and I was I was in a place one night when the police came looking for the same guy I was looking for, <laughs> and I told them who I was, but they came to the vice president's office a few days later to ask for to talk to me, and the vice president was just extremely upset that I was even there, and I said, well, where do you think Jesus would have been? Well, he wouldn't have been there. Oh. And anyway, that got me in trouble, and... Uh, but friends that I was in a small group with really felt like I was supposed to go to Belmont, and and so we did. And all these Jesus movement started coming over there. Yeah. Okay. So, so you become very, the pastor at Belmont Church. Yeah. Yeah. This is in the what? This was seventy one. I'm going to say early seventies. And so uh, while you're at the church, then the Jesus movement, which is really just gathering steam at this point, right? Well, I mean, the Jesus movement started in sixty seven, but it didn't move in here till probably the late 60s. I mean, just really, but it was everywhere. I was with people in the parks and in their dorm rooms and everywhere already when I was at at Lipscomb. And so I was kind of a guru of the Jesus movement. I was I was 41 and at the time. Yeah. So when I came to Belmont, even though there were like 65 or 70 people the first Sunday I was there by, you know, within five or six months, the little building was just packed. I mean, there were people, we had hundreds of people. and uh, So in Tennessee, you were doing what Chuck Smith was doing in California. And we went out and visited with Chuck Smith because okay. we knew we were doing the same thing he was doing. Yeah. Well, there's so much more to learn from the life of Don Finto. We'll get to it in just a moment here on First Person. With the crisis in Ukraine on all of our minds, I encourage you to visit the website febc.org for the latest developments. The Far East Broadcasting Company has had radio ministry in Ukraine for a number of years now, with many staff located in the country. They continue to update us with news and videos of the situation, which you'll find at febc.org. Also, the podcast, Until All Have Heard with Ed Cannon, can be heard there online with additional information. 
So keep praying for Ukraine and find the latest updates at febc.org. Talking with Don Fento about the Jesus Movement in Nashville back in the day. And Don, of course, uh, Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith were a part of your church. Here's the interesting thing. (laughs) The interesting thing is that at the time we were a non-instrumental music church. Oh, Church of Christ. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And and here all these, we were raising up, we we started a coffee house, Koinonia Coffee House, because... We knew that we couldn't do the things we wanted to do. And so some of us who were elders <laughs> were also on the board at the Quantania Coffee House. And we knew we could do stuff over there okay. with a rented facility that we couldn't do in the church building. So you're working around the system, weren't you? <laughs> but then we outgrew the coffee house, and we, the elders, <laughs> including the other elders, gave ourselves permission to do the same thing in the church building. And okay. so we moved it all over to the, the church building. The times were a-changing, weren't they? Yeah. <laughs> but the people were coming to the Lord— they were coming through the Jesus movement. They weren't coming in the Sunday morning assemblies as much. And people would come a long time before the assembly would start and just start singing spontaneously mm. because we were singing scripture songs. And I, mm-hmm. it was it was an amazing movement. Think back more on that time for me and describe that those days for me, if you would. What was the Lord doing? It was such a supernatural thing. People used to say to me, well, how can we get a Belmont going here in, in Springfield, Missouri or something? I'd say, you don't. You find out what God's doing, and you join him. Mm-hmm. And that's all we did. I mean, it was a supernatural move. And, you know, it was wonderful. But I don't want to go back there because I believe the greatest revival in the, is coming ahead. Oh, boy. The day in which we live right now is very similar to what it was like in the late 60s, early 70s. A lot of hopelessness. Yes. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, yes, uh, of exactly. despair, a lot of, of uh, well, disgruntled and, people, and, and yet and, the Lord used that time. And a lot of immorality yes. and all this kind of stuff, yes. even among Christians and sometimes, and yeah, no, it's uh, it's very much, I mean, yeah. despair. Uh-huh. And that's, and, and see, the Jesus movement people were, they were hippies, they dropped out of everything, and that's how I got into the Jewish thing, too, because some of the ones that came to the Lord were Jewish. Oh, but but anyway, there was such despair, but then they threw it all all over, and when they threw it all over, they didn't have anything, and that's when they started looking for Jesus, uh-huh. or for some answer, and it yeah. was Jesus. Do you refer to that as a revival? It was an awakening, but yeah, I do refer to it as a revival. But in reality, yeah, some of it was really revival because there were a lot of people that had Christian roots, but really, it revival when they had Christian roots, but there were so many Jewish people, like they would... They were dropping out, but then they become Jesus freaks, and their parents didn't like what was happening to them there either. And I started meeting weekly with the people that were Jewish that were coming to faith to help them figure out what does it mean to be a believer in their own Messiah? Because one of them would say to me, wait a minute, are we crafted into you or are you crafted into (laughs) us? Aren't we the ones who did originated this? So I was having to help them because there were no Messianic congregations at that time. That was... That was just being birthed. Well, this is also so countercultural. Uh, yeah. So, what would you say to a parent who came to you and say, "Well, I don't know what's going on. I'm not sure I, I like what's going on here." What What was your counsel to these parents and others? Uh, the only thing I can think of right now, because that was a really, <laughs> it was problematic sometimes. The only thing I can think of right now is uh, I might say to them, "Watch the fruit. Mm. See if there's real fruit that's born out of this." You know, <laughs> that's good. I yeah. like that. Yeah. Very good. Well, tell some more stories of what, what it was like in those days about 
people's lives being changed in the midst of the Jesus Revolution, as they called it. It was it was, it, it was an amazing time, and um, I mean, we we also our church building was in the Music City area, but it was downtown. I mean, not. It was down in the trap. Anyway, there were a lot of homeless people there, this is too. This Nashville. Uh-huh. And we would have people walk in off the streets from the homeless. But, but let me tell okay, let me tell you one story. We had a guy. In fact, I guess I, I can tell his name. I mean, he, he, Gary Paxton. Some people would know that name. Yeah, I know you, the name. You know yes. that name? Yes. Well, see, Gary had gone through, you know, he had been wealthy and bankrupt and wealthy and bankrupt. And he was living in Nashville with his common-law wife, Karen, at the time. Mm-hmm. And... uh and when he would get good and drunk, he would start reading his Bible. And, uh, and he had had, you know, that he was in a bar one night. This is what really threw him out. He was at a bar one night, and a woman was started trying to get in a conversation with a woman, and she said, I'm your mother. Oh. And she was. Oh, my goodness. He was adopted and didn't know it. Oh, my goodness. And so that just threw him into, into a turmoil. Yeah. So anyway, but he... Uh, at the time, we had this little building, and across the street was a drugstore. And he and Karen would drive up in front of a church building and see all the people going in, and they're fine. And they said, "We can't do that. We've got we don't have the right clothes. We've got they were wearing Salvation Army clothes, and you know, just picking up stuff anyway." But one night, he tells the story. One night, he came to the drugstore, and they saw people going in with blue jeans and barefoot and evening dresses and tuxedos. And, and, I, and he, when he told me that, I said, Gary, come on. I think you're exaggerating. He said, I swear, Don, no. <laughs> well, I still thought he was. But I was talking to Burton Grant one night, Amy's dad. Uh-huh. And, and, and he said, no, Don, he's right. Huh. Gloria and I and, and a couple of other friends of theirs, Came one Sunday night. We were going to something at the country club, but we came in our evening dress and sat in the back and left early. So he, he's absolutely right. So Isn't you, that interesting, though, that he was attracted because people looked like him going well, to church? He, and and he, he was attracted because people were coming in all, ki- all kinds of ways, you know, and and they were accepted. And, and, and you know, he, he would tell the story about somebody with a, you know, some lady with a finery and sitting next to a person with blue jeans on, you know, or barefoot. And another funny thing that happened, we had one of our older elders that was there when I went there. Um, one day there was there was a man sitting on the front row with overalls on and no shirt. And, and he said, who's the man on the front row? And I said, he's a guest. And he said, oh, okay. In other words, if he's a guest, leave him alone. If he's one of us, tell him <laughs> yeah. to put a shirt on. <laughs> Of course, long hair and beards were a big oh, issue yeah. in, oh, yeah. in, in yeah. the day. What yeah. does Chuck Smith, the song, say? Long hair, short hair, no hair at all, with, <laughs> as the uh, country church song goes. Yeah, yeah. Don Finto. Well, we had just wrapped up the interview, and it occurred to me that Don had one more experience very early in life that God used to shape him and his ministry. Well, there's another thing I'd like to talk about, and you've told me you're willing to talk about it, and I think it's important to talk about these things, but it has to do with your early life and yeah. being molested sexually. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And this is something that we shy away from talking about sometimes, yeah. but yeah. you think it's important. I do think I do think it's important because I told you, I was, I think it was in my 50s before I ever told, I, I, I don't know who I told, I, surely I must have told my wife, but I don't know that I told anybody else. I don't know if I did or not. But anyway, I was at a, this big youth retreat in Florida, 
and was listening to the testimony of the young man the night before. And when he got through, the Holy Spirit started moving on me, and I didn't know what was happening. And so I got to a place all by myself and just let go. And I started wailing and sobbing and shaking, and I had no clue what was happening. And finally, when I got to a place where I could talk to the Lord, I said, what's happening? Is this self-pity because I didn't have that kind of rearing? Because my dad had left when I was two, and I was looking for a father, and this preacher cousin of mine started molesting me, and I both loved it and hated it because he was paying attention to me. And it, and it, it took me years to get rid of those images. Thank God they're yeah. gone now. You had not repressed the memory. I hadn't you repressed knew what it. I was dealing with it. But on that night, something else, something was happening. So when I finally got through with this sobbing and wailing, I said, Lord, what is this? Is it self-pity? Because I didn't have that kind of rearing. Because this young man had parents. And he said, no, it's gratitude. Because I've made you whole. Now I want you to get back in the morning and tell those young people about yours. Because there are more of them there that can relate to you than related to him. You've been healed, now go talk about it. And you know what? A girl that had been raped comes to me. A 17-year-old kid who never would know who his father was because his mother was a prostitute. I mean, they started coming to me. And so from that day to this, I, well, I had, to, I had to come home and tell my home congregation because I never told them because mm-hmm. it was out. And then I taught a downtown uh, Bible study at downtown Presbyterian Church for 20 years. And so I had to tell that. Well, I still have a friend right now who told me one of his coaches had molested him and he'd never told anybody until I gave my testimony. Those things need to be told if they're going to help somebody. Yeah, think if you hadn't obeyed yeah. the, the Spirit's prompting and not talked about it. Right. Think of the people who wouldn't have been helped. By I know. Way. We may and, be speaking to someone right now Amen. who is not talking about it or it feels guilty about it yeah. or has some repressed feeling about it. Yeah. Your advice to them. Find somebody that you really trust to start with, just one person that you really trust and just tell them. Because when we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all of our sins. So it doesn't matter how old somebody was or, you know, you still feel guilty because you know it's wrong, even though it was an adult that was working on you, you still feel a guilt about it. But And you can't really have genuine fellowship with people unless those things are brought to light. I mean, I have more genuine fellowship in my life after that came to light. Because I had nothing to hide at all about anything. That's such a powerful perspective from a man who has experienced more, both the good and the bad, than most of us have. It's a great lesson for us. You've been listening to Don Finto tell his story on First Person. Of course, there's much more about Don that we didn't have time to talk about, but you can read more about him and his books when you visit firstpersoninterview.com and follow the links provided. I enjoyed meeting Don and hope you enjoyed listening. This program is made possible by the Far East Broadcasting Company, which reaches untold millions every day, no exaggeration, with the gospel. Learn more about FEBC by visiting febc.org and or listening to the podcast until all have heard, available at the website or on many podcast portals. Search for Until All Have Heard. Now with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Join us again for First Person.